Good evening. More than 11,000 people are now thought to have been killed in southern Asia after an undersea earthquake sent enormous waves rolling across the Indian Ocean. The quake measured 8.9 on the Richter scale, the biggest in the world for 40 years. It was a very difficult day. I, uh, my mother-in-law called me. She's like a news junkie. And so she had heard about it on CNN. And she called me and she said, all she said was just, Ron, it happened. It happened. In 2004, I was in fifth grade, and I remember being in our homeroom classroom, and my teacher turned on the television. So I remember a news channel about it, and I'd never seen anything like that before. I felt there was going to be something big happen in Indonesia any time now because of all of the indications we had received from historical accounts. You know, there, there'd been almost 40 years of quiescence and that just had to come to an end. And that 2004 event was the beginning of that end. Hello, my name is Andrew Gary and welcome to Seismic Sound Off, in-depth conversations in applied geophysics. 2018 will mark the 10-year anniversary of the SEG Foundation's Geoscientists Without Borders program. GWB. This program uses the specialized knowledge and technical skills of geoscientists to mitigate natural hazards by connecting universities and industries with local communities. In this episode, we highlight the commitment of GWB project leader Ron Harris and his student, Tori Duncan, to tsunami preparedness in Java, Indonesia. Flying into Java was really, it was humbling because up until that point, I've been studying it so much. I've been looking at the island and the whole country on on Google Earth and on geologic maps and then flying over Java in real life, this chain of islands and physically seeing the topography and different volcanoes and the coastline. I remember the ocean being so blue. Well, the first thing is I start thinking and even dreaming in Bahasa, Indonesia. <laughs> I feel myself relax a lot and start to enjoy the fact that I'm in that culture and uh, where things move a little bit more slowly and relationships are a little bit more important than getting things done. And so it's, it's like going home to me. It's wonderful. It's really hard to leave every year. As we kept flying along the coast, we came closer to Jakarta, and you could see communities here and there, and then Jakarta is a very big city. And then just to think of all the people that are living on this island and at risk for tsunamis, it also made me a little afraid to see so many people, and then also myself as I'm flying there, putting myself in harm's way right in this area that's so prone to natural disasters. Across six countries in southern Asia, the death toll is now rising as the terrible picture of damage emerges. We had 10 Indonesian students. We had two faculty from the Indonesian University who's been sponsoring my research for a long time. We had several students from the Indonesian University. I had several students from BYU and some from Utah Valley University. We had four faculty from there. We had two faculty from here. The first time I ever met Ron Harris was when I ran. Okay, so I ran into him and 
I'm on my own hiking and I'm running down the trail and I run into him and I recognize his face from just being around campus and I'm a geology student at BYU and so I've, I've seen his face around because he's in the department and just said hi to him and so we had this really brief conversation but there would there was something about our conversation that I knew that I would be a lot more I would get to know this man a lot more. One time when I came home from one of my projects and I just left my bags in the in the living room and my son and one of his friends were playing around. This is when he was probably eight or so. And his friend looked at my the business card on on the tag on my bag and he you know it said Dr. Ron Harrison. He said, I didn't know your dad was a doctor. And my son said, Well, he's a doctor, but he's not the kind that helps anybody. And that that was a wake up call for me. I did my PhD at University of, of London. I was hooked on studying active tectonics in Indonesia. Did this and I learned the language and I, I, you know, you have to live with the local people when you're out there in the middle of nowhere and you see that they have basic needs that aren't being satisfied and I could give them knowledge about their surroundings that could help them to prevent natural disasters. And that's why I decided to do the Fulbright Fellowship. As soon as I started that, I realized that I was connected to something so much larger than I had realized. I started going through the historical records and seeing how many times that country had been battered by huge earthquakes and huge tsunamis and really very little had been done on this, exposing just how dangerous a place Indonesia was. Wow, this was, this was my calling in life. You know, sometimes you find it, sometimes you don't. And I found it at an early age and I'm grateful. Within hours of Sunday's disaster, donations were pouring in to save the children, many of them online. We just got in the tallies um, to this very second. We've raised um, two million two hundred. I found that it was difficult to find grants or other funding outlets that would be willing to provide funds to do exactly what needed to be done, and that is to go to the coastlines and go from village to village to village and educate people. I found I could get a grant to study a volcano, or I could get a grant to study tsunamis, but I couldn't find a grant that would provide funds for the communication part and the implementation part, which I realized, I think most of the scientific community realized after 2004, was the most important part of the equation. It's so much easier to fund someone when there's immediacy associated with the need, for example, after an earthquake or after a tsunami. It's much more difficult to say, well, sometime, which we don't know when exactly, there's going to be a tsunami that hits this coast like there has been in the past. And But, but then when the people say, well, when? And you say, well, we don't know exactly when. It's impossible to know exactly when. <laughs> then the immediacy just kind of falls off and they say, well, you know, there's other important needs. And so it's been an uphill, an uphill struggle to try to get people to think that paying forward, that being proactive and not reactive is really going to, in the long run, pay off more. At a, an AEG meeting, the American Association of Engineering and Environmental Geologists, and I was expressing my frustration about how there so few funding agencies were available. And this, and this person from AHE came up to me after my talk and said, 
said, do you know anything about Geoscience Without Borders? I said, no, I've never heard of the organization. And he said, you know, you really ought to look into it because that's exactly the reason it was it was founded was to do things like you've just you just mentioned in your talk. And so it was amazing how the mission statement of Geoscience Without Borders aligned with with what we'd already been doing and what we were proposing to do in Java. He was, was introducing his project in Indonesia, his Waves Java project, telling us what he did the past years. And it was really exciting to me. I was, I'd never seen someone in geology or even in scientific research at BYU do something like this before, where they're taking their, their scientific knowledge and, and expertise and using that to give back to others and turn science into something that can impact people's lives positively and even save lives in a non-scientific way. And that's how it all, all began. And then I kept talking to Ron and was able to get involved as part of his mentored research team and become a research assistant for him. And then he invited me to come along to Indonesia this past summer. And then we would divide up into three groups, which we call the forecasting group, the communication group, and the implementation group. The forecasting group would go and prospect for tsunami deposits and talk to people about survival experiences. And the communications team would go out and set up presentations. And then they would split up into three different groups. And each group would go to a different school or community center, and they would make presentations about tsunami hazards. And then the third group, the implementation group, would go into the town and work with the city leaders to see what kind of plans they had, if any, to deal with the threat of a tsunami. And if they didn't have any, they would work with them and help them to determine which would be the best evacuation routes. And then they would actually set up an evacuation drill. I joined our sociology team and went to an elementary school with them where they summarized the 2004 event and the dangers of tsunamis. And the whole time I was watching these children's faces as they're watching the video about the 2004 event. And at first it's a little, it's kind of funny if you're a kid because you see all the people running, you know, from the ocean and it seems a little silly. And so maybe they're laughing at first, but then the video quickly turns to the devastation. And you see debris all over the city, homes flooded, and just the emotion that you could see, that I could see in the faces of these young, curious minds. The despair and impact of the tsunami was so candid on their faces and the future of the world and the future of this country lies in the hands of these children. It really instilled how crucial this work that we're doing is and to be able to prepare a village and or a, a group of people for a tsunami and to save the lives of these young faces of these children who have so much to offer the world, that's where, that's where it really struck my heart. We would meet together at dinner and we, would, and we would have each group talk about what they had achieved during that day. And sometimes those meetings would go way into the, in the night because there were so many cool experiences that we'd had. 
And again, when we would get together and start talking about it, we would all be amazed just how big of a thing we were involved in, that it was much, much larger than ourselves, and that the communities were embracing this. Ron and Tori's work is important. GWB projects pay it forward and save lives. Your gift can be the difference between SEG funding two additional projects in 2018. Through the generosity of several foundation donors, SEG has a $50,000 GWB matching fund this year. Double your impact now with a donation at donate.seg.org. The SEG Foundation also wants to take a moment to thank Schlumberger for its foresight and leadership in helping establish the GWB program. Schlumberger strives to be a unifying force for social and environmental stewardship and engages in philanthropic activities that reflect the company's values. As the founding sponsor of GWB, Schlumberger believes in the science of geophysics to affect positive changes in communities facing environmental hardship and natural hazards. Now, back to the show. If the ground shakes for 20 seconds, then ground shaking is produced by an earthquake large enough to have potentially caused a tsunami. It would take about 20 minutes for the tsunami to reach the shore after the ground shaking hits. The tsunami is most likely to happen around there, should produce at most 20 meters of run-up. That is, the water will reach a maximum elevation of 20 meters when they run up on the land. So the 20-20-20 is if the ground shakes for 20 seconds, then you have 20 minutes to reach 20 meters elevation. We developed this song for the 20-20-20 principle, and some people from another village came to one of our presentations and heard the song went back to their village because they knew we were going there next and taught it to one of their high school gamelan bands. Gamelan is this like gong type of band. So when we arrived at that village, they were playing the tsunami song. <laughs> and we had, uh, we just barely arrived and we knew we hadn't taught it to them. And that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, having the music already be there when you arrive. The Muslim organization in Indonesia usually has a kind of a community center in each of these cities. And oftentimes they, they would ask for us to come make a presentation. Well, you know, we would ask them to invite other people, not just people from their organization. And so there were times when we would have Muslims and Christians and, and Hindus all meeting together in, a, in an Islamic organization community center. And I would ask them, I go, has this ever happened before? And they'd say, never. Even the idea of it happening before hadn't even been thought of. And so it built a unity in these communities. And so disaster mitigation is really uh, something that builds unity among a community. It gives them all one thing that is apolitical, that is a-religious, that is a need that the community needs to, uh, to address. It's about saving lives. And so everybody buys into it. And these other t- distinctions just seem to melt away. That's something that you don't expect from an emergency preparedness project, but it is what happens. And crisis brings people together. And so if you're just by necessity, because everyone is afraid, and then the only thing that you have to hold on to when everything is lost is is your loved ones and the, the people around you. And at the end of the day, that that's all that you really care about. I have seen that preparedness 
and talking about that and having hard conversations like what will happen and what will what will we do when an earthquake happens or when when a crisis strikes what will we do and what is our plan where will we go having those conversations which are difficult to have really they really do bring people together and they strengthen communities and one of the, the most dramatic experiences we had was a researcher from the Indonesian University had been working on the archaeology of central Java and was able to take us to a place where you would see buildings that were ruined, overlain by a tsunami deposit, and then another layer of soil on top of that where people had cultivated, and then another bunch of buildings with a deposit from probably a tsunami. It was hard to tell, but another sand deposit that had wrecked everything, and then the present built environment on top of that. So you could see how the civilization of Java had been living with these hazards for millennia and how they had always built back in the same place, not realizing that they were building on top of the ruins of an other, of, a, of, a, of another civilization that had been wiped out by a tsunami. So they were actually digging the footings for their house into these tsunami deposits without understanding that that's what they were. You know, we had the Indonesians there were for the first time, we're like, look, you guys now know what's happened in the past. There's a geological record of it right here. And I don't know of any other place in the world where you could do that. In the place that I'm at right now, that is what is keeping me going. It's these searches for people like Ron, and that's the work of the future. It's the work that's going to most directly impact the world. And it's what's bringing science to communities that haven't seen science in this way before. It's so powerful because it, these are the, this is the type of work that, that can save lives. And so, so the fact that there's organizations like In Harm's Way and Geoscience Without Borders, that's where the future of science should be directed. Because what are, what are scientific discoveries if there, aren't, if there aren't any humans alive to appreciate them anymore? I'm so convinced that it's not in the science. It's not in the geoscience. It's in the science of communication and in the science of implementing protective measures. Really, I think the most important part, this has been the hardest thing for me to finally come to grips with as a geoscientist, is that we really know where most of the natural hazards are going to happen. Maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago we didn't, but we now, we more or less, we, we've compiled all the historical accounts, we've monitored the earth for long enough that we pretty well know the most vulnerable places. Sure, there's going to be surprises, but in most cases, when a big earthquake occurs, it's not in a place where we didn't think it was going to happen, or when a tsunami occurs, it's not like, wow, you know, there's no precedent for that. But it's the communication aspect, which we really need to improve. The landslides they had in Washington, I mean, this is in the U.S. where we're supposed to be experts at this. And, you know, you look at a map and you see there's all these landslide scars and they built the houses right underneath them. So the science had been done and the science was very accurate that there would likely be a landslide there. But the communication 
uh, failed. There was a gap between the forecast and the local knowledge. Who, this is my big question to everybody, who is tasked with filling that gap? I haven't been able to get a good answer to that question ever since I've been asking it. Who is tasked to fill in that gap? And if no one is, then then it's something we all have to do, no matter what our specialty is. We live in the right along the Wasatch Fault, which could, which is overdue for a rupture and could rupture at any day now. And so we need to be prepared. And I think that meeting Rong and the work I've done with him and also my experience in Java has really made the danger and the need to be prepared. Been, it's really elevated that importance in my mind because in Java, you see it happen all the time in Indonesia. In Utah, when I talk to people and they know that I'm a geologist, that's one of the first questions that comes up is what's going to happen when the Wasatch Fault ruptures? And everyone wants to know that, but it's it's still not common knowledge. And it needs to be and it can be. When it just raises the importance of emergency preparedness to me because you don't know when an emergency is going to happen. But... It will. Everything that's ever happened in my life has pointed towards this moment. All the training I had as a geoscientist and all the other experiences that I've had have all kind of pointed towards this time. And I feel like I'm, I'm there and, and it doesn't matter really what obstacle or barrier we face. It's my mission. I guess this is the final word. A lot of people worry that spending money up front for being proactive about disaster mitigation uh, might be a waste of time and money. Because what if the event doesn't happen for another 50 years or so? And that could easily be the case, especially along the Wasatch Front where the strain rate's low. But from what I've experienced, Just the process of doing this work builds a community's resilience to not only the tsunami or the volcano or the earthquake hazard, but it builds a community's resilience to any kind of threat or any kind of emergency because they're involved in something that brings them together and they're doing something with the hope that it will make a difference in in the future. And any kind of activity that is focused on something like that enriches and builds and has positive impacts on people. Preparedness is a very, very important part of developing an awareness of what life is about. And I can point to some examples. Japan is probably the best example. Back before there was anything like this going on, the people in Japan would come together and they would erect these big monuments. If something bad happened in a place, they'd erect a monument and write about it and tell the people that likely this thing could happen again, so this is what you need to do. And those are monuments of people who are thinking about the future. They're not just thinking about themselves and their day-to-day activities. They have put time and effort and hope into building a better future for their for their posterity and that is an incredible monument that you could give the next generation 
And so that's my argument to people who who think if there's no immediacy, there's no reason to get involved. And I, and I think the, the reactive approach is just the opposite. It builds dependence instead of self-reliance. And, and so that's why In Harm's Way and other agencies who are, who are focusing on prevention are on the complete different side of a parallel universe where we are building self-reliance and resilience versus dependency. a great feeling to know that you found something that you can throw everything into and even when things don't go right it's what you're it's what you're supposed to be doing when you realize it's much larger than you thought it was that's why the peaks are higher the troughs you can more or less predict but the peaks when you when you when you realize wow we you know that peak is much higher than we ever thought it would be <laughs> and and then when you see something like that get a life of its own, and you know you gave birth to something very, very important that could save lives, yeah, that's a very satisfying feeling. Help us spread the word. Share this episode with your friends and colleagues. The more that people learn about Geoscientists Without Borders, the better our chances of funding more projects like Ron's, reaching sustained funding, recruiting volunteers, and continuing projects that impact communities. If you would like to apply to lead the next GWB project or help fund additional projects in 2018 with a $50,000 matching fund, visit scg.org GWB now. Thank you to Ron Harris, Tori Duncan, and Daniel Horns. A special thank you to SEG staff members Linda Ford and Isaac Farley. Thank you to Schlumberger for its continued support of GWB. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Your review helps others find the show. Subscribe to Seismic Sound Off on the podcast app of your choice to receive the latest episodes first. This episode was produced by Isaac Farley and hosted, edited, and produced by me, Andrew Gary. Show notes at seg.org slash podcast. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.